Live. Well, good evening to all the Christed Guinea Saturday listeners out there on this Saturday, March 17th. Apologize for the late start, but I am Carolyn Yeager, and I know I'm not a stranger to any of you. I'm very pleased to be doing a program for Bill Fink once again while he's traveling. Rodney Martin is co-hosting, and he has been uh, here on as Bill's guest in the past, so you all know him too. So, hi, Rodney. Good evening, Carolyn. Uh, thanks for having me on. Well, uh, it was uh, it's really uh, it's not really me, but uh, I did suggest that we come on together. So I think we're going to do a good job. I'm, I didn't. I was trying to get on in Skype, but I'm here on my phone after all, which I'm a little bit uh, a little uh, thrown off the track here with that, but uh, not too badly. So uh, tonight our topic is, folks, the good society which is social policy in National Socialist Germany. And so I'd just like to start out by saying that the Third Reich cultivated a strong nationalist government, a folkish, heterogeneous population, a traditionalist approach to family, home, and religion, and a revolutionary approach to economics and social programs. it is the last one, the uh, social programs and economics that we're going to mostly talk about tonight, but they're all interrelated, so everything is going to come up. Um, now, the good society, we're calling it, is the actual opposite of what is portrayed in the media, as you all know, you who are listening. Um, I know that you know that National Socialist Germany was a good society, but most of the world does not and is told differently, although people are starting to learn about it a little bit. And so we're going to present some information tonight that's going to really underline that this is the kind of society that we would really like to have. Uh, for example, uh, I'm just going to start out with a few little items here, not nearly the, uh, not nearly what shows the total of what's of of what went on in that in that. Uh, under that regime, but um, just a few things to start out, which is, for example, the protection of animals was a top priority. Uh, Nazi Germany was the first country in the world to ban vivisection, which is currently became later very popular in Britain, but it wasn't at, it wasn't um, part of the law at that time. Uh, it was uh, enacted uh, Germany enacted a total ban in April 1933, only three months after Hitler became chancellor. And the current animal welfare laws in Germany are modified versions of the laws introduced by the Nazis. Uh, The second item is that uh, they also regulated how many animals could be killed per year in hunting through the 1934 Reich hunting law. And Goring also banned commercial animal trapping, commercial animal trapping, and they regulated the shoeing of horses so that the horse, because horses, uh, if it wasn't done properly, uh, it could injure the, the horse, and it could also be painful to the horses. So this was regulated. And in 1935, two years after Hitler became chancellor, they added the Reich Nature Protection Act, which protected certain native species. And they specified in the law that the animal was to be protected for itself and made an object of protection going far beyond the hitherto existing law. So uh, in this, they even added the humane slaughter of fish and lobsters, uh, which is often st- 
stated, and people are quite amazed at that, that lobster trapping was regulated so that it would be more humane. Uh, in 1934, the Prussian Ministry introduced education on animal protection laws at primary, secondary, and college levels. Then in 1937, a decree was published by the Ministry of the Interior which specified guidelines for the transportation of animals. In 1938, then, the last year that they really uh, were in a truly peaceful uh, environment in Germany, Animal protection was accepted as a subject to be taught in public schools and universities in Germany. And so all of this was a first in the Western world. That's just a little example of what kind of society uh, Adolf Hitler had in mind for for Germany. So, Rodney, I've, I've started out there. What do you have to say about that, and where would you like to go from there? Well, Carol, where do I want to go? Carolyn, I got so excited about this topic when we were discussing it and preparing for the show, I, I, I went into my study, I pulled books off shelves and printed off old notes, and, you know, literally my desk is just crowded. I, I think we'll probably run out of time. But uh, just, you know, you talked about a good society. Well, let's just start off there, and we're going to go back. But I actually printed out the actual copy of the actual act that you referenced, and we'll talk about that. But you talk about the good society, and, you're, and, and that is a proper topic because, is as the National Socialist campaign and actually entered the actual elective process in 1925, 1926, after Hitler uh, left Landsberg uh, prison, there was this common discussion of a uh, uh, Volksgemeinschaften, uh, a people's community. That was what they were going to build. That's what they kept telling people. And unlike many political parties, the National Socialists, they did what they said they were going to do. And started about 1927, 1928, there was a series of elections, and the National Socialists began to increase their uh, uh, vote tally. And you could see it coming. The National Socialists knew that they were building up, and it was just a matter of time. And uh, so in the 19, November of 1932 uh, was a watershed uh, election uh, and uh, the uh, National Socialists put out a very detailed uh, program, and it was called an emergency economic program, but it covered all these social pro programs. They outlined what they wanted to do. They covered the economics. They covered unemployment. They covered the social programs. And I'm kind of going to use that as a guide, and i got other, uh, uh, other uh, ancillary uh, uh, materials. But I think we should, for the purposes of the show, use that because that was the blueprint and everything that eventually developed in National Socialist Germany and eventually even broadened and expanded had its birth in that document, in that plan that the National Socialists handed out and said, here is an emergency program, and this is what we pledged to the German people, and they did it. And if you go through this document, and I'm actually going to post it on my website at worldviewfoundations.org. It's an incredible document. Uh, they talked about unemployment. Unemployment causes poverty, yes. Weimar you know, had, had just failed to address the unemployment issue. It talked about you know, the banking and the capitals. Capital you know, it had, you know, does not create jobs, but jobs create capital, you know, which is what we struggle with today. They had failed to uh, address that. It got, they got into some very detailed methods of creating jobs they talked about, uh, in, in their plan, where they were going to talk about not just 
theory, but they were going to talk about putting people to work, creating what would become the uh, right labor service and having markets for increased job and lay the foundation for what would become uh, uh, German self, uh, self-sufficiency. Um, in June of 33, now we fast forward, uh, in January 30th, Hitler becomes chancellor. And contrary to some of the uh, uh, misconceptions, he was a working chancellor. Yes, he wasn't one that was into the chancellery office at 6 a.m. and micromanaging, but he was one that demanded that the big ideas had to be bounced off him, and he set the big big ideas. And then he had the uh, wherewithal to bring in some very talented people. Yalmar Schott was one of them and charged them with developing these social programs and these economic policies to bring Germany back relatively fast, very fast indeed. Well, in June of 1933, there was a program developed called the Reinhardt Program. Now, the Reinhardt Program, to some people, if you were to say, what was the German Reinhardt Program, they'll immediately start talking about Reinhard Heydrich and those mythical camps. And, but it was not. The Reinhardt Program in June of 1933, which was just a mere six months, five months after Adolf Hitler became chancellor and the National Socialists at that time was still in a coalition government called for infrastructure development. It was introduced as well as indirect incentives such as tax reductions. Weimar, it, it was interesting. It was Weimar in the depths of the depression, reparations, repayments, and what did Weimar do? They taxed the heck out of their own people for the benefit of, of, of Jewish bankers. And with direct investments in such projects as waterways, railroads and highways to get people working. And that goes to the statement they had made in their November of 1932 uh, uh, program. They fundamentally wanted to change the way the, you know, Germany did business. They really didn't care about the rest of the world. They said this is all wrong, saying that capital drives everything, work drives everything. Capital is secondary. And that was an anathema to the world bankers and to the world banking system and such. They decided to go the opposite completely. They were revolutionary in those in, in that way. So anyway, uh, this is followed by similar initiative. I'm sorry, Carolyn. Yeah, <laughs> I was just yeah. going to say, Rodney, uh, let's, let's not go into too much detail, background detail, because it, as it turns out, it's my, it's my fault, but since I'm, I'm on the phone instead of on Skype, uh, I just uh, have to come out right out and say I'm not going to stay on for two or three hours. Uh, as okay. I thought, we might even go on, you know, but I'm just not going to be able to do it. So uh, because it it costs just a little more than it. it okay. Well then I'll. I'll right now, so I want to kind of move along with some things, and then I might uh, I, I might uh, cut out and let you continue with um, with some with some of the things you really would like to talk about. Uh, we might we might do it that way. I don't know. It's kind of it's really too bad. I'm sorry that um, that my Skype thing it didn't. Not a, like just it. an example of between 1933 and 1936, employment and construction alone in National Socialist Germany. Employment is critical because it, according to the National yeah. Socialist, employment is the best social program. Rose from uh, 666,000 to over 2 million. As a matter of fact, Germany became overemployed. They were calling people out of retirement yeah. by, by mid to Yeah, well, I've, I've, got some, I've got some notes on that, too, and, and I think it's very important because unemployment was the first thing Hitler uh, addressed. And in June uh, and in September 1933, he passed uh, 
two un- uh, unemployment laws, uh, and that so that was just a few months after he became chancellor, and then a, a few months later. Um, and uh, they provided loans to states and communities to create work. He was a create work program uh, from the government, from the from the money that they put out there, which was then going to be uh, how that how that financial thing worked uh, was like social credit type of a thing. And um, during the first two years, um, he he really uh, he paid a lot of respect and homage to manual labor, and the work that was created was largely in agriculture and highway building and um in uh let's say uh in in 1935 okay uh they created the uh, uh okay compulsory military service started in March 35 which took the pressure off off employment and then another thing that did that was the 6 month stint compulsory stint in the labor service the uh, arbeitsfront uh for boys and girls uh which which passed in June 35 so this way, the younger people had something to do that they were getting paid, and they were taken out of that labor market, uh, which was so, which was still so competitive and so hard, so difficult. But by, uh, as you said, uh, unemployment was cut in half in the first year, and uh, in 1935 it was down to 2.1 million unemployed. By 1936, there was full employment. Uh, so, uh, and comparing that to what Roosevelt did is very interesting. In fact, as you said here, by 37, 38, some businesses were complaining about a shortage of workers. And mm-hmm. I've got it compared to Roosevelt. He had a, uh, well, you're comparing to the Weimar government, but Roosevelt launched uh, the Civil Works Administration at the end, in the winter of 33, 34, so almost a year after he uh, took office. And it, it only lasted... Um, it didn't. After a few months, it was terminated because it wasn't really working. Uh, the uh, the work that was done was just kind of useless. So then, they, but they also had the Civilian Conservation Corps, and it lasted from 33 to 42. So if it was still going on in 1942, Rodney, um, that means that they still needed it until the right. war broke out. Until they really got into war pro- production. The same way with the the works. They also started the Works Progress Administration. WPA in 1935. Uh, that wasn't until then, and that was to provide work for the unemployed. And I know that was where all they even hired artists, and they had all these artists painting murals all over the country and so on. So uh, that that um, went on until 1941. So they, you know, they were still, and it employed two million people a year. So you know, Roosevelt in the United States was way behind. I'm sure you have something to say about that. I think two things we need to clarify for listeners, which I'm sure our listeners probably know this, but for maybe some first-time listeners, the the big lie in among propagandist historians is World War II and uh, the raiding of other nations and the conquest of Europe is what was responsible for the great German economic miracle, and that is patently false. Germany had already recovered by 1936. It was a you know quasi self-sufficient nation, and that was the next. It had nothing to do with the war. It was actually Roosevelt's warmongering in World War II that brought the United States out of the depression. Roosevelt's economic policies had failed. Roosevelt, the United States, was looking at Germany and was just drooling at their success and couldn't understand why their policies had failed. Germany was already a world power. At, you know, in three years after having been bankrupt and broken, both economically 
uh, and spiritually and hear the National Socialists take over and within three years, 36 months, had uh, turned it around economically, culturally, and spiritually. That didn't happen in the United States. The United States is basically because they entered the war, because Roosevelt is warmongering. It was the warmongering and the war that turned that brought the United uh, United States out of the depression. That was not the fact with the uh, with, with with Germany. Uh, moving on to 1936, Carol, in the interest of time, once the once the unemployment issue was resolved, then in Germany you had the situation. Goods and services were being produced. Germany then could uh, address the trade issue. And, of course, the big, a big policy of national socialism had to do with uh, self-sufficiency as much as possible. And uh, Yalmar Schott in 1936 moved over to uh, take over the, the Reichsbank, and Hermann Goering uh, uh, took over uh, the overall uh, uh, development of the overall German economy with a mandate to make Germany self-sufficient, and that was called the four-year plan. Under Goering, imports were slashed, and there was a purpose for that because Germany did not want to be overly dependent upon imports for uh, anything. Wages uh, and prices were placed under uh, state regulation and control, and uh, under and if there was uh, any sort of funny business, uh, uh, people were sent to, were put in, put on trial and sent to jail. Dividends were uh, restricted to six uh, percent on book capital. You talk about some of these programs that Germany had in place with regard to manipulation of the economy. If we'd have had these type of, 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 of regulations, you wouldn't have had the uh, tremendous, tremendous unstable economic issues and the crashes we've had like what we had in 2008, for instance, here in the United States. Strategic goals had to be reached and all costs were declared. The construction, or then we got into the construction of all of the synthetics and such so that Germany would not have to rely on the uh, importation uh, of, of raw materials. Uh, by 1938, this is a full year before the war, German trade policy was being used both economically and as a political power, and by that time, Southern Europe and the Balkans had become dependent on Germany. The German economy would draw in its, some of the raw materials that it couldn't even produce from countries such as uh, Romania, Bulgaria, and Greece, and, uh, in fact, those countries transacted over half of their foreign trade with Germany exclusively. And beyond that, German businesses were actually forming cartels and monopolies with uh, uh, countries extending into South America uh, and Latin America as well, using this barter system that countries are starting to use again and begin to redevelop and use in the National Socialist model as well. It was okay. rather unique, and that shocked the system as well. Well, okay, uh, but let, let's uh, to get back to the social policies and to the yes. social, yeah. you know, to the, to what the people experienced living there. Right. Um, right. Yeah, Absolutely. Go ahead. So you have the economy. You have the economy in three years fixed. There's plenty of money. So and that's where we're going with this. You have a whole bunch of dynamics going on at, at all at once in what we call the good society, the people's community. You have people working. The you know, and of course, the big issue is they're not being taxed to death on money that they don't have like uh, the sheriff of Nottingham knocking on doors and such. So then, you know, there, this is comparing National Socialist Germany to, say, the Soviets don't have collectivization or anything of that nature. You actually have the development of very innovative uh, 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 social policy. Let me say a few, okay? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've, I've got a few things here I want to get down, and then I'll let you go on again. Um, the, the social policies, you know, we, I said in the beginning that um, 
what what kind of a what what kind of a right what kind of a country what kind of a nation no what <laughs> how they wanted the right what kind of a German Reich they wanted it to be and um, it was a traditionalist approach I said to family home and religion and there's there's a, there's some things about that to be talked about here uh, you know one thing is the marriage loans that are pretty well known that uh, aided they both they they, they loaned uh, they gave loans to uh, to young newly married couples, and oh, yeah. the loan was not required to be paid back if uh, they started having children. And uh, if they had, uh, I think, is by the third or fourth child, they didn't have to pay any of it back. Um, sure. They didn't have to really pay back with interest. They just had to. Had, they were supposed to be paying it back. But as long as they were doing what they were supposed to be doing, it really didn't have to be paid back. And um, but it did require women to give up their jobs once they got married, and this was to help the unemployment. This started right in the beginning, this mar- these marriage loans. Um, and it, it aided, it did two things that were very important. It aided reproduction, which is which was the goal of the National Socialist uh, um, uh, philosophy for the country, and it reduced unemployment because it, as women gave up their jobs, uh, then the, the men could take them. Because, you know, they did believe that, that a man needed to support his family, and it was most important for men to work first, and then if their women were needed, and they certainly were needed by the time the war really got going, then the men were all in in uh, fighting, and the women were all doing the jobs at home. So it wasn't a, it wasn't so um, a rigid system, but this no, this was the purpose of of the marriage loans, and then then they had. Um, Kellen, yeah. Can I give you a, can I give you just a brief, a brief blurb on the marriage loan? That began in August, just just eight months after the National Socialists came to power, okay. and by the end of 1936, they had issued 700,000 of them. The loans were were voided after the fourth child. As a result of those marriage loans, 500,000 German children were born between though between 1936 and uh, between 1933 and 1936, three years. That those those are really good statistics. Uh, thanks. Yeah, that that was a very successful program, and uh, I think it was uh, Russia under Putin had tried to start something like that a few years back. I don't know how they're doing with it. You don't hear much about it. You know, the media doesn't like to talk about these things. But anyway, this is this is a, a really important part of of a traditional society. Now, the, another one was uh, the law for the encouragement of marriage, which was passed in July 1933. I don't know if that included the marriage loans. Oh, the main. Okay, that's the same thing. I'm I'm repeating myself here. Okay, then um, they had uh, okay a popular health manual, German Gold, which uh, advised uh, women. They had gave a lot of advice to women. They had a lot of programs for young mothers. They had programs where mothers could go, uh, uh, young women could go to uh, these special like uh, retreats or not a retreat, but you know a camp, a, a very nice place, and they were taught. How to uh, uh, how to raise how to take care of babies how to raise their children how to cook how to do all kinds of things to help them be good homemakers um, and all kinds of young women went to, went to those and they enjoyed them they were very they they set them up in a very nice way in very nice uh, resort type places and uh, anyway this uh, health manual uh, told mothers that they had to absolutely avoid alcohol and nicotine during pregnancy and when nursing. Uh, this was in this came out in 1942. Said they uh, they hinder, harm, and disrupt the normal course of pregnancy. 
they told him to drink, uh, well, fruit juice. That's not good for you either. But I guess at that time they thought it was better than, than alcohol. Anyway, um, so this was uh, they 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 uh, put a lot of effort and energy into health, as we talked about before on a program on uh, on my Heretics Hour program. So we won't go into into that so much, but. Uh, it was a real overriding aim of of the Third Reich to uh, to upgrade the health and the well-being, and the intelligence and the uh, the pro- the the knowledge of uh, of the people. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, along those lines, I I touched on, and you're absolutely right. And there's there's some very there's there's a couple of very good books out there that actually highlight the uh, the uh, uh, new mother uh, program and uh, the uh, these programs, and this was a program initially that was independent, that was not the Lebensborn program, which came later for uh, uh, for uh, other mothers. But this was, you know, the program you're talking about, where the mothers would go and learn um, uh, home ec and motherhood and all that. Those were uh, uh, was a completely was a new program that started early on. Uh, getting back, uh, Carolyn, um, farming Far- farmers were major supporters of the National Socialist government and of the National Socialists. Well, the National uh, Socialists were major supporters of the farmers, but I've, I've read uh, that the farmers were not the biggest supporters of uh, of the National well, Socialists, but I don't think they... Well, know. let me tell you, that's a misnomer. <laughs> let, me explain, let me explain to you why. Uh, in, uh, in 1929, there was the Wall Street crash, and that went around the world, and of course, the first thing the Americans did to try to Put a, you know fingers and dams was to start calling in you know all the loans they'd made to, to Germany and of course they tried to change the reparations payments and such. But when when Adolf Hitler took uh, uh, took power and of course you know there was a brief time of, of of artificial prosperity during the Weimar period between 19 late 26 to right before the Wall right at the time of the Wall Street crash. When the uh, National Socialists uh, took power, they uh, uh, what they uh, did uh, for the farmers was they uh, uh, rolled the uh, policies back because the Weimar government had actually reacted to the Americans and other governments' uh, demands and had increased taxes enormously and other other demands. And uh, so the National Socialists enacted a 1933 farm law, and uh, the farmers were actually assured uh, uh, sales and were given subsidies that uh, Weimar had never provided, and in some cases had had taken away, and and uh, the uh, food prices were rolled back to 1928 levels uh, uh, for the farmers. They were very fa- uh, 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 farmer friendly, and if you look at some of the old videos of some of the festivals and such, uh, I think of the what's called the what they would call the Thanksgiving. Uh, festival at Wuckerberg, uh, 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 you'll see a lot of that was uh, was farmers, the peasants and the uh, coming in or the farmers coming in. Uh, the farmers uh, uh, were were big supporters because they they the National Socialists instituted some major uh, policies that benefited. Okay, uh, I want to uh, I want to bring up the uh, hereditary farm law, and then I want to say something about how the Hitler Youth were organized to to work with the rural people. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, hereditary farm law that was passed in September 1933, and uh, it's it's uh, the liberal the historians today like to 
kind of criticize it and say they, you know, talk about its drawbacks. But uh, there's there was no perfect solution to this, but this worked pretty well because um, it it was that uh, uh, any farmer holding that was large enough to support one family, because there were those that were smaller than that that couldn't even support a family, but people had a little little land that they grew things on. Uh, but anything large enough to support one family or larger uh, had to be passed to one to the principal heir intact, because you know you had families, you had several children in the family, and if the uh, parents died, then um, if they all if they all got a part of it, then they they were had a small part and they would want to sell it, and that's how these these uh, farms got taken out of the hands of the German people and put into the hands of uh, foreigners, bankers. Uh, and at that time, Jews, you know, Jews were buying up these farms before 1933 uh, like crazy, weren't they, coming in? And yeah, oh, they were everybody was, was they, couldn't, they couldn't make it. The times were so bad. And so people were having to sell their farms or they mortgaged them and then the bank took them over. Um, and uh, they were losing all this. So this was a high priority uh, for the National Socialists. And also, they could not be mortgaged, these, these farms under the, under the hereditary farm law. They were not allowed to mortgage their farms, so that's another way that they would lose them. Because people, you know, uh, they need money or they think, well, I'd look like to do something else. So then they go, then they go off and then the, then the land is lost to the German people. So this was something that, that worked very well, but not everybody was real happy with it. But now the, the other members of the family the other children who weren't the principal heir, and that was always going to be, I guess, the oldest, uh, probably the oldest son or maybe just the oldest, I don't know. But um, they uh, they didn't get, they weren't just left out. I mean, they got something. They didn't get as much, I think, as the principal heir because he had to work the farm. You know, he was responsible for all that. But they got, uh, they got uh, money, and uh, he had to pay them something, and probably, and they, they had some right to, return and live on the farm if conditions were very bad. Uh, that was some some kind of a home law, a Heimat something law that I didn't write down. But um, So they, they had some rights, uh, but basically it was to keep the farms uh, in the hands of the German people, right? Give you an example, Carolyn. In their November 1932 emergency program, the National Socialists called for the redistributing of lands in need of improvement of 5 million hectares, thus increasing farming production by 25 to 50 percent, or at least 5 million marks, and they did it. They began that program. And if you look, I'm looking at a, a layout, a, a, a picture right now that shows the election of uh, May 3rd, 1933, which was a special election that was called by the National Socialists, which they were still, they were did not consolidated their power yet, and it shows all of the provinces, all uh, 35 provinces, and it shows the percentages that the National Socialists held. And this is this is right before this is before right at, before the Enabling Act. The parties had not uh, been uh, had been uh, uh, prohibited yet, and there were 30 parties that participated. And in the rural and outlying areas, the National Socialists, these rural areas, never got less than 35 percent of the vote. And in a vast majority of the 35 uh, provinces the National Socialists got 45% and higher. And as a matter of fact, in East Prussia, in Frankfurt, Emmen, Order, and Pomerania, they got over 55% of the vote and got a higher percentage of the vote than the National Socialists did in Bavaria. So uh, it's, uh, it's an interesting uh, 
dynamic. I mean, that was something that I learned in preparing for uh, uh, for this for this program. Yeah, that is interesting. Uh, you know, speaking now. of the the voting, people have people are under the impression if you listen to the mainstream media and uh, the Jewish media that there there was never any voting. Uh, as soon as Hitler took over, he he, he uh, consolidated power through the Reichstag fire, false flag, and then he uh, then he just had the just everybody was just rubber stamp and he just did whatever he wanted. Um, but uh, that's not the way it really was. Although he didn't he 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 was the the undisputed leader, uh, but the people since everything he did worked so well and <laughs> everything got better for them. Uh, they were quite happy to go along with that. Well, yes, they and the people voted. I mean, the people, there was continual election. There was elections on uh, on uh, uh, bringing uh, occupied lands. You know, uh, you know, the referendum. You mean there's a difference between a referendum and an election? Yes. But they had elections yes. certainly for the Reichstag and for yes. for uh, state offices and all so on. Yeah. Yeah. This was not a Stalinist uh, dictatorship like uh, you know, like our ally was during that uh, during that same period. That we you know coddled up to uh, United States that coddled up to. Uh, give you a, 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 an interesting uh, uh, dynamic. Do you want to talk about the uh, the tax uh, structure in the Third Reich? Okay, before we do that, let me make one more point here. I don't think I, I mentioned this one. This was another law that was passed early on, uh, you know, uh, called the Law on Working Conditions. It passed in January 1934, so one year after after Hitler uh, took power, and it transferred this. Now, this was this is contra- This is a lot of people like to make out that uh, Hitler uh, banned the uh, labor unions. Well, he did, and he set up a uh, a state labor union, which was called the DAF Deutsche Arbeitsfront. And um, but it was very fair. It was made up of uh, government and party members and the members of the DAF, which was this uh, labor union under Robert Ley. Um, and they made sure that uh, there was no there was they were not allowed there was no allowance for strikes. That was what they wanted to stop because there had been all these labor stoppages, which were instigated and in, uh, by uh, the communists and and uh, and the Reds and so on. So they uh, this was to stop that, so they could continue to be the, all the industries can, could continue to be productive. This was in the interest of the industrialists and the business people, and it was in the interest of the. Uh, Trade union, the union members and workers to keep working and to get paid a fair wage or a, you know a good wage, and so they, the government through their through this um, DAF and this uh, law, uh, made sure that they they uh, what would you you call this a when you uh, negotiate together, but they they you forced to come up to, you know you forced to come to, bargaining. to to an agreement you know you can't go away and not agree. So, uh, but they did come to agreements, and everybody saw that it was in their best interest to give way to some degree, and and give you know, and this was a part of the, the, uh, the, class. It wasn't a classless society uh, ever. You know, I read somewhere that uh, somehow uh, the intent of the National Socialists was to create a classless society in this way. This was not about classless. This was simply about respecting the members of the other classes. They still had an industrial class. They still had a working class. I mean, people didn't 
didn't pretend like they were all equal, like in in communist uh, uh, countries. They they realized that there were different uh, different kinds of people and different kinds of education and different kinds of abilities, and everybody had their place. And this was what National Socialists. Uh, uh, this was the kind of society it was in which everybody worked together for the common good. That was that's probably the most the best way to describe what this society was and why we call it a good society because it, the idea was that um, it certainly was not one that catered to individual uh, happiness where each individual should be able to do whatever they want to find their own happiness, which sounds kind of good, you know, uh, if people are just talking, if you're just hearing it. Yeah, everybody should be allowed to, to pursue their own brand of, of happiness. Well, uh the National Socialists didn't think that, that Germany could could survive that way and that the Germans had to kind of be uh, convinced that they had to, to work for the common good, and that meant the high and the low. You see, Hitler didn't just say the, the lower class should uh, give in for the common good, but everybody had to give in for the common good. And uh, it was it was really working very well, and people, the Germans understood that uh, they weren't going to uh, each person was wasn't going to have their heart's desire maybe uh some might but some might not but it all depended on what what needed to be done so that's what this whole deutsche arbeit arbeitsfront um was about and how that how the uh, how they worked the uh the trade union deal and it 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 kept everything running and you didn't see there of course you couldn't go out and strike and protest but the people didn't you know, you can't say, nobody has ever tried to say that the people wanted to and they weren't allowed to. I mean, they, they were actually, you know, they went out to do it, but they were, you know, attacked by the police or something. They didn't do it. Here's, a, here's another social inner, inner, innovation. We have it, it came years later in the United States, and it's widely abused. But in November of 1933, through the uh, like labor service, there was a program set up called Arbeiter Danke, Labor, Thanks. And it was a health insurance, a special form of health insurance for members who, as a result of their labor service, had sustained injury or illness and they were unable to work. It was basically disability. Now, it was in the threshold for getting it was very high. I mean, you had to have some legitimate illnesses, some very serious illness, or be very seriously injured to be able to be eligible for that program. It also provide uh, education and skills for the you know, very poor and, and who were in need of education as well. Unlike the disability program in the United States, where basically you fill out a form and if you're of a, of a you know, certain ethnic composition, you just get a check for life. Uh, it's just another entitlement. This program was actually meant to reward workers who had worked and had become ill and could not produce, you know, could not work. But this was the first, essentially. Real, real. I got to emphasize the word real. Disability program uh, safety net for workers who had worked and could not work anymore, and rewarded them with a uh, health uh, program uh, to assure that they were not uh, impoverished. Mm-hmm. And that you know, in these programs, let me emphasize here for a minute: these programs that uh, the National Socialists put in place, they stayed in place and they were funded through the end of the war, through May of 45, and in some cases, some of these statutes and laws and uh, remnants of these programs, for instance, the animal cruelty uh, legislation, they exist in what is what we call Germany 
today. I have some examples uh, in my notes of some of the uh, remnants of laws that were put on the books in National Socialist Germany that uh, were carried on uh, in what is the oh, occupied Germany. Yeah, oh, there's many, 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 many of them. And they don't, uh, they don't want people to know that. Well, for instance, that you know, during the uh, uh, bad uh, periods when the economy finally fell apart, it wasn't propped up by bogus loans and Weimar. They had carjacking problems, and you know, it wasn't until not you know fairly what we would call recently, all of a sudden, you know, carjacking became a federal crime in the United States. But carjacking was a serious issue in 1929 through 1933. So the National Socialists actually created and developed a carjacking. Uh, with, I'm using the term carjacking because it's recognizable. We would all know what that means. They didn't call it carjacking, but um, uh, it was a statute that had to deal with basically mugging somebody for their vehicle, hitting them in the head or shooting them. It was worse and then taking their vehicle, robbing them of their car or in their car. That statute is still on the books in Germany uh, today. I thought that was interesting that that still uh, exists. Uh, you okay, know, the, I'm going uh, to I'm going to uh, talk a little bit here about Volksgemeinschaft, which is what I was actually uh, speaking of uh, when I was talking about the the trade unions. Uh, that's that's a part of it. Uh, Volksgemeinschaft means people's community, or really, Volks is the uh, uh, folk, the people, and uh, um, how they organize and together for their common good. So this is what this is another thing that um, was a key idea of Adolf Hitler, um, and he was really sincere in believing that this is what he wanted. He wanted the German people to be one people and to uh, to help one another and to do for one another and to make a a community that all Germans could be happy in and benefit from. This was his. This was truly his idea. His idea was not. To take over the world, <laughs> I, no. I was I was listening to some idiots who were say that on uh, internet talk radio uh, today because I was taking some notes for my show on Monday, and I mean you know they just keep repeating that he was trying to uh, you know uh, global government. He was the first one that wanted global government. He wanted to take over the world. Anyway, um, this. Uh, in this, you know, people are not separated by elitism and class divides, as I was saying. Um, but now it's true that the SS were groomed, were being groomed to become a kind of elite for the nation, but they were inculcated with the idea that they were to serve the people, as Hitler exemplified. Because Hitler always served the people, and you, you already uh, touched on that some. Um, not ever to look down on them or, you know, to think that they were superior to them. So this, this was the whole idea that that they had, and I, I mentioned that in the announcement, so I wanted to talk about that. Do you have anything you want to add to that? Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, if you look at the way he also lived his life, he was not uh, – look at the <laughs> he, – he dressed very modestly, acted very modestly. Uh, he had no problem going out and glad-handing and being amongst his people. Um, yeah, and he was very looked, polite to everyone, even in his personal circle. Yes, and everybody he, he, at Tess who writes books about him. Now, lately, just recently, the last one just a few days ago, some uh, woman who was a maid at his uh, his home in Berchtesgaden uh, came out for the first time. She's in her 90s and said and and wrote a little something or said something about 
what a good guy he was to her and how much uh, how well how highly she thought of him and she didn't I don't whatever they might say about him uh he was good to me you know Let me and clarify he was that uh, to all that of us Hmm? That Go article, ahead. Carolyn, is a 2008 article that has been, been recirculated by a couple oh. of groups. Actually, <laughs> well, I that just came read out it. I probably read it then, yeah. too. <laughs> yeah, that came out in 2008, and I actually sent that around as well, but I saw it coming back around again. I thought it was interesting because if you look at the date on that, that was a, a U.K. newspaper article. They actually interviewed her, and uh, she actually spoke uh, for the first time, but that is actually a 2008. But but the, the merits of what she said is absolutely Correct. You talk to the survivor, even the correspondence that I had back and forth with uh, Rojas Mish, all of his inner circle people did not have any a, a, a bad thing, uh, you know, to, to, to say about him as far as his manners and uh, how he conducted himself. And they all remained loyal, even some of them through the most atrocious 10 to 12 years of Soviet uh, captivity. And he was, you know, he rode an open car. Uh, he regularly had people that would come up to his home uh, in uh, Berchtesgaden, and he would, re- you know, regularly stand out there for, you know, prolonged periods of time, shaking hands and greeting his people. Uh, our leaders today and at the time rarely do that as well. So he was truly part of that uh, uh, people's community that he was encouraging and was wanting to uh, 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 develop. Now, let me give you another statistic. And uh, this is something that uh, the propagandist historians will, you know, uh, cannot deny. There was a study done, uh, oh, it's probably been about six, seven months ago, for uh, one of the German publications, and it was printed, it was accepted, and then the article was promptly, uh, uh, you know, buried. Ninety-five to ninety-eight percent of the population in Germany benefited. uh, financially and otherwise under the National Socialist system. Now, Who says that's that? pretty good. Where is that's pretty good. Uh, there was a, 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 a German university conducted the uh, uh, study, and it was printed in the uh, Bild, it was printed in Der Spiegel, it was printed in some of the major, and it was printed, and when his findings came out, it was printed, and then it was never heard from again, the fact that that, you know, 95 to 98% of the population, and that was from basically 33 to the end of the war, benefited from the National Socialist system. And, uh, uh, and you know, we, we might as well add here that part of the reason that all this was working so well was because they had taken the, so many of the Jews out of uh, out of positions of influence. Which is the whole... Uh, Attack made on them uh, after the war and, and 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 up to today. You know, oh, what they did to the Jews, and yet the only reason that they could make things better for the Germans was because they got the Jews out, and they didn't get all of them. I mean, there were still plenty of Jews, uh, in, you know, uh, in uh, professions and so on, but they got a lot of them, and so it, it was it started becoming a real German nation. Of course, the Germans were totally running the government, so um, uh, that that's the reason. Well, that's what they did, and like you find any government, you know, that could boast those types of numbers that says, and they were, you know, that can say that, you know, basically the high 90s, 98% benefited under this under this system, you know, uh, you know that's uh, that is that is outstanding. 
But what they did, you, you basically just hit the nail on the head, Carolyn, is they developed a system of people's community. And they had done that by, by, by 1936 with the, all the various programs, and there's some more we can go into. Yeah, but it was Germany for the Germans. People could go there and be guests, but they weren't Germans. And so they had, uh, they had uh, developed a system where they had retaken their country. They had thrown the middlemen out. They were not allowing uh, interlopers to come in and exploit and be locusts, essentially, and exploit their, their nation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you, people ask, you know, why did they fight to the bitter end in 1945? Because they had something worth fighting for, which is something uh, very, very rare in history. Very rare. Well, let's, let's mention the winter relief program so we don't forget it. Oh, yes, uh, this, absolutely. This absolutely. Big... Absolutely. How many, you know, right now, Carolyn, here in, in top, and keep in mind, when the, winter, the winter relief was unveiled in the very beginnings of the National Socialist government when times were still very tough. People yeah. were still unemployed, and yet here was the chancellor of the government, the head of state, coming out and saying, contribute some money for your fellow uh, uh, folk that is in need. And the country rallied, and every winter, you know, those, those well, you see those famous posters of the little All, all of the National Green. Socialists, the uh – the SA and and the Gau lighters and their people and the even they even got the Wehrmacht uh, into yeah. it or in in the SS and so on later uh, they all had to go out and and attend yeah. these functions at which were to raise money uh, and and these these people this was this was mainly for the people in the rural areas who yeah. were still dying and starving and they didn't yeah. have any any heat in the winter so it was mainly for heat. Uh, to give them uh, coal and wood or whatever for to heat their homes and uh, and clothe some warm clothing and then some food that mostly that you know they were freezing to death um, right. in that in that yeah well, you're, you're right that's what it was for but the fact that the country rallied around it you actually yeah. you know the party it was a party function well well like you say Hitler made them he came out and said we're going to do this and he yes. stood behind it like you say he he went out there himself and he constantly he made speeches about it. And so on. He didn't forget these people, yeah. you know. And then not only that, you know, the winter. Well, they were grateful too. You know, he would sponsor, you know, the one pot meal. I think it was one yeah. pot meal yeah. on Sundays. You know, one pot meal. Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, uh, it's uh, th- these were programs that uh, not only they weren't. Uh, yes, they were social programs, but they were also uh, culture and uh, community building programs that united the nation into that. Uh, people's uh, people's community and uh, this is foreign this this is just absolutely foreign here while the world was mocking the uniforms and the marches and the parades and the one pot meals and the winter aid well you know it, the people in Germany weren't laughing about it people who were starving people you know who had been broken just a few years before who you know were, uh, were, were who were now having their country being rebuilt um, I, I can tell you, probably, Carolyn, there's some people in the uh, United States right now who who need some winter aid, and there's no program like that now because well, nationalism is a bad thing. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, and then of course there was the, uh, you know, the the uh, entertainment programs for the people. But uh, I'm going to skip well, that. There's, right. another, there's another program, Carolyn, along those lines as we segue in radio. If the National Socialist Germany was such a totalitarian dictatorship, then why did they, they really, you know, they made sure, they had a program to make sure 
Every German had a radio. I have oh, radios in my that room. Be, that's part of a totalitarian system, Rodney, yeah. that they want you to have radio and TV so that you get the message that they want. So that's well, not a real good argument. Well, well, it, 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 Although there was a lot of statement on it. Well, and the way Europe Europe is clustered, though, I tell you what, you know, North Korea, they don't want you to have those devices, and Stalin didn't want his people to have those devices. And, uh, you know, they, it's very easy sitting in central Germany to be listening to the radio and to be listening to foreign broadcasts. Well, so you're right. I never, right. I, never, I never bought the argument. Here was Germany cutting But, you know, during the war, it was uh, against the – they weren't supposed to be listening to foreign broadcasts yeah, during the yeah, war. Yeah, but – yeah, but uh, you know, I, I just—it just never made you know. If you if you sit there and analyze the facts and look at ev- look at everything that was done socially, culturally, and otherwise during that during in that uh, uh, in that society, and then look at the look at the hogwash that is thrown against the wall, it just doesn't it doesn't add up, and it do, it just yeah. doesn't add up. And the fact that people are paid, historians are paid gobs of money to write these fantasy books. Uh, just dumbfounds me. But anyway, that, the okay. radio I thought was interesting because those were that, that radio, and I have one sitting in my living room, and I thought, you know, <laughs> interesting. You have a you have a, a, a National Socialist radio. Yep, I have one of the radios. It's uh, probably from 1936. It still has the tubes in it. Yeah, great. Um, well, uh, you know, I want to um, move into a little bit into something that I want to read, which is about Adolf Hitler's attitudes toward Christianity. And then I've got a news story that goes with that. And this is something I just yeah. came upon. Uh, I was uh, waiting to see when you wanted to move into that. Cause I yeah, this past week. And that, then we can go on into something else. But, um, you know, I'll just start out by saying that, that the ideals, a, a part of the whole uh, National Socialist uh, Society was that they were, it was very idealistic, and the ideals, the main ideals were loyalty, honor, and heroism, I think. And, uh, and of course, there was a strong work ethic. And so we, we'd already talked about, about the work. But um, they were, uh, it, was also, uh, it was also always a Christian nation. Germany was, one of, was probably the most Christian nation in Europe because it was part of the uh, Holy Roman German Christian Empire, you know, it, it took over the Holy Roman Empire uh, after it fell apart and became the Holy German, German uh, Empire, some, however that worked. Um, but uh, so they, they were very a very Christian people. And uh, they um, then as they brought in the nationalist idea and the racialist and, and eugenic idea, um, that that all became something that uh well uh that you could discuss well you could discuss uh, well a lot there was some dif- there were differences of opinion now the idea that that germany was uh not a christian nation under adolf hitler but it was a it was a um uh a pagan nation is absolutely false even though there were and i talked about this last november when i was here on christiania talking about christianity and national socialism so I I won't uh, go go over that again at all. But um, they it, uh, there were some elements in amongst the National Socialists, especially Himmler and Bormann and Rosenberg, who um, who liked paganism or liked actually ancient German German uh, religions and so on. That's what they wanted to get back to. 
and they didn't care for Christianity. But mostly um, everybody else uh, was quite comfortable with Christianity, but they wanted a kind of a national German Christianity. However, what I want to talk about is um, there, there's a book that I, that I want to recommend. Uh, it's one of the best books on Hitler I have. It's called Memoirs of a Confidant, and it's the memoirs of uh, Otto Wagner, who was a, an advisor to Hitler um, up until 1933 or so, shortly after he became chancellor. Um, and he was uh, he's a very intelligent man, more of a socialist, and uh, but he was very uh, supportive of of Hitler's form brand of national socialism. Uh, naturally, he was German, and he wrote a lot of things in this book that are extremely believable. Uh, I, I really put a lot of stock in it. And I was going through here. I was going to look for some things about the social programs, but what I came upon was um, actually. Two things that he wrote in which Hitler, he, he quotes Hitler. As he writes it, he took a lot of notes all the time that he was with Hitler, over a period of quite a number of years. A uh, very close relationship with him, traveled with him uh, a lot of the times. He was traveling with him as Hitler traveled all around Germany, uh, you know, um, building up the party and so on. And um, so he's, he, he writes this as a quote, and I'm going to read it. This is, this is Hitler speaking. Uh, what is at stake at the present great turning point, he asked. Uh, an individualistic worldview is being replaced by a socialistic one. A thousand-year-old attitude toward life is being thrust aside by completely new concepts. Such a change cannot be decreed by legislation, nor can it be brought about by a ministry, no matter how homogeneously it is put together and how saturated and filled it is with the new ideas. Then he says, such a transformation requires an inner conversion, a mental, a spiritual, an ethical, even a religious one. Do you think that your minister of labor is capable of that, or your minister of transportation, or the minister of justice, or even the minister of culture? Of course, they are necessary and must make an effort to work in the new spirit. And that is why I approve your plans and Strasser's proposal. But all the officials you will encounter at some later time, all the regulations, the entire closely interwoven and entangled conditions of collaboration with other ministries and offices, and finally the pure mammoth strength of the factor of inertia, all these will paralyze you, will stall your work. Your honest and industrious ambitions will be frittered away in petty conflicts and in open and covert resistance until you and your men are yourselves confused and lose heart and presumably and prematurely gray collapse in the face of Deficient human insight and knowledge. That is why you must go ahead and set up your organizational section, too. It has to be. That's obvious. But do not overestimate it. That's not what counts. He says what is crucial is the internal conversion of the people. And this is really what, how Hitler, what, what he functioned from, I think, and why people say he wasn't. You mentioned he wasn't a micromanager. And people say, well, he, he didn't. He didn't tell people what to do well enough. They, did, they were, didn't know what, so they were fighting with each other. Well, this was his idea. He says, what is crucial is the internal conversion of the people, of the Volksgenossen, of the Volk. And that is a political task. And yet almost everyone is imprisoned in the liberalistic attitude. Do you think that a confirmed industrial entrepreneur is prepared suddenly to admit that his property is not a right but a duty, that capital should no longer rule but be ruled, 
That is not the life of the individual that matters, but the totality. And oh, that it is not the life of the individual that matters, but the totality. That the principle of the soldier's sacrificial death should be transformed into the readiness of every working person, whether he be active in the economy or elsewhere, to sacrifice himself for the community. This is the way he talked. He could go on and on. He did go on and on for hours. It is such a far-reaching, now here's the important part. I probably should have started right here. It is such a far-reaching and complete conversion that the adult is no longer capable of it. Only youth can be converted, newly aligned and adjusted to the socialistic sense of obligation toward the community. For almost 2,000 years, the gospel of Christ has been preached. For 2,000 years, the sense of community has been taught. Love one another, care for one another, respect and help one another. But today, at the end of these 2,000 years, economic liberalism flourishes as never before. During a war... During a world war lasting almost five years, he's speaking of the First World War, the nations slaughtered one another, and in a sadistic delirium, the victor tramples on the liberty and lives of the vanquished, while in their temples they pray, Whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. The mendacity, the infamy, the hypocrisy of mankind have become a downright blasphemy. And in a couple of years, we are supposed to make up for all this and to restore order where millennia have sinned, we're to believe that we can restore the value of the word of God, the teaching of Christ, the truth of a holy religion, where generation upon, generations upon generations, nations upon nations, uh, the entire lifespan of a human cultural epoch, all were unable even to recognize the deep abyss in which they wandered and sojourned. Uh, okay, that's, I'm going to stop there, but it shows... Um, he says a little bit more about Christianity, but it shows that he had a very Christian point of view. Um, oh yes, Carolyn. From the yes, Bible, yes. from his own Bible reading, he had a great respect for the person that he called Jesus Christ. But he didn't have a respect for the churches or what they had done um, in any of that. And that is that is when people hear quotes from Hitler where he's he's dismissing uh, Christianity. He's talking about church Christianity. And the people at, here at, uh, at, um, at uh, listening to Bill Fink's program understand that, and that's why I wanted to bring this up. Now, here's another quote that's even better, and just bear with me while I do this. Sure. Uh, socialism, now this is, again, Hitler. And this guy, uh, Otto uh, Wagner, he, he was a very intelligent guy, and he, said, he, t- he, uh, he was put in prison in '45, and he uh, wrote, he 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 had some notes, but he rewrote all this stuff, and he wrote all this stuff while he was there, um, remembering, you know, what Hitler had had said to him. And he always said that Hitler made a made a powerful impression on him whenever he spoke. You know, people would go away from Hitler, and then they'd think, well, I don't think this is, um, you know, they start having their own ideas. They think, well, they, I disagree with this. It should be this way. But everybody says we were talking about all the people that knew him. Everybody, they all agree that when Hitler spoke to them, they were totally convinced. He he had such a powerful personality because he was totally convinced himself, and he had and he did have a fantastic mind. So anyway, here's the quote: "Socialism is a political problem, and politics is of no concern to the economy." He once said to me in the course of one of our conversations, "Socialism is a question of attitude toward life." of the ethical outlook on life of all who live together in a common ethnic or national space. Socialism 
is the Weltanschauung. But in actual fact, there's nothing new about this Weltanschauung. Whenever I read the New Testament Gospels and the revelations of various prophets and imagine myself back in the era of the Roman and late Hellenistic as well as the Oriental world, I am astonished at all that has been made of the teachings of these divinely inspired men, especially Jesus Christ, which are so clear and unique, heightened to religiosity. They were the ones who created this new worldview, which we now call socialism. They established it, they taught it, and they lived it. But the communities that called themselves Christian churches did not understand it. Or if they did, they denied Christ and betrayed him. For they transformed the holy idea of Christian socialism into its opposite. They killed it, just as, at the time, the Jews nailed Jesus to the cross. They buried it, just as the body of Christ was buried. But they allowed Christ to be resurrected, instigating the belief that his teachings, too, were reborn. And it is this that the monstrous crime of these enemies of Christian socialism lies. With the basest hypocrisy, they carry before them the cross, the instrument of that murder which in their thoughts they commit over and over as a new divine sign of Christian awareness and allow mankind to kneel to it. They even pretend to be preaching the teachings of Christ, but their lives and deeds are a constant blow against these teachings and their creator and the defamation and a defamation of God. Now, this uh, Wagner may be putting the word socialism in there more because he was a socialist. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he may he may be uh, ha- he may not have this exactly, but I think this is the way that um that uh Hitler talked about Christ and there's more but I don't think I should keep going with this too long. Let's see. He Can says I, um, I think you're right, Carolyn, and and I I think what happens is uh, it's easy. It's easy for the uh, propagandist historians to to make these silly statements that uh, and use some of the personal opinions of. And Rosenberg was another one who had uh, was who had uh, a belief in the uh, pagan uh, uh, beliefs of uh, pre-Christian Germany, uh, who you know had issues with Christianity as long as as well as, as Bormann and such. But you know Hitler himself had numerous meetings and interactions with uh, you know the archbishops and such in the church. And if I can just give you an example of one, yeah. Well, just before that, you do that, let me just let me just finish this. I or it's sure. going to get lost. Um, so what I'm trying to say and what I get from this is that, and I knew this before, that that Hitler um, had a strong. Uh, a, attachment to what he called real Christianity. And, you know, being that he was uh, he was a Catholic brought up in the church, and as a young boy living in a small uh, village or small town, uh, you know, the priest and the, the head of the church, maybe higher than a priest, but um, was the most important person, you know. The, and so that's who you look to, and, and he looked to that and thought that was the best thing in the world to be. And he imagined he would... He would go into the church too when he got older because he had uh, he was very he had an ambitious type of mind, but um, but the thing is uh, you know he he had a real respect for the the ideas and the uh, personality of Jesus Christ who he always said was not a Jew. Um, but now what I want to compare this to, I mean he knew he wasn't Jewish because of the way he talked and the way he acted that he knew he didn't behave as a Jew so. He understood those things. Now, in September 22, 2011, there was an article in uh, from Berlin about Benedict, the current Catholic Pope. 
Benedict, the, uh, he's the 16th. And I have to go into this because he referred to Adolf Hitler as a pagan idol, uh, you know, which he wasn't. And so here, here's some more of these, uh, the lies, it's just well, everything the Pope says. Now, this is the Pope. <laughs> supposed to be so honest and truthful and it's some kind yeah. of saint, spokesman for God. He is telling one lie after another, and it can't all be total ignorance. Uh, he says uh, he he was on a tour of Germany. Of course, they, they got a German pope so that they could uh, force him to go along with the Jews because the Germans today can't stand up to the Jews at all. So a German pope is not going to. So anyway, he's he's the pope, and but he's uh, he's touring Germany, his, his old home. And uh, he says, it was from here that the Shoah, the annihilation of our Jewish fellow citizens in Europe, was planned and organized. Then he says um, that the Nazi reign of terror uh, was based on a racist myth, part of which was the rejection of the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of Jesus Christ, and of all who believe in him. You see how untrue that is? Uh, Then he says, the supposedly almighty Adolf Hitler, well, he didn't call himself almighty, but uh, was a pagan idol who wanted to take the place of the biblical God, the creator and father of all men. This is the Pope saying this. Um, then he says, a few more things. Uh, he says, the images from the concentration camps at the end of the war show what man is capable of when he rejects God. Well, who rejected God? I guess he's saying the National Socialists rejected God, which, of course, they didn't. They were believers in God. Uh, then he says, the real blossoming, he says, um, science today, he's, he's praising science today of a real blossoming of Jewish life in Germany and praising a deepening dialogue of the Catholic Church with Judaism. And then he said, finally, the worst of all, he says, we Christians must also become increasingly aware of our own inner affinity with Judaism. For Christians, there can be no rupture in salvation history Salvation comes from the Jews. This is a quote from the Pope. So, so there you have it. Um, I just had to bring that up to show uh, how religion, uh, how 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 to deal with religion when it comes to this. I mean, it's it's really something. It's been it's been totally absconded, totally taken over. Uh, well, Carolyn, a couple of things about Mr. Ratzinger, the current Pope. He's artificial. And, you know, uh, Martin Luther, in his uh, famous The Jews and Their Lies, he warned about the Jews. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas, in his treatise De Regimen Judorum, warned about um, uh, the Jews and their attempt to rule the world. He warned uh, about that as well. But, you know, uh, and then at that same period of time when Ratzinger was making his tour of Germany and such, that's about the same time, Carolyn, that he issued his edict in which he basically, on his own accord, invalidated Matthew's gospel, which basically Matthew says the Jews are responsible for the death of Christ, etc. Et Matthew being one of my favorite gospels. I wrote a public uh, article in a, uh, a newspaper condemning Ratzinger for doing that, and I put it on my mail list. And I actually got... Uh, a, uh, email back from a uh, self-described revisionist chastising me and take, sticking up for the Pope, and uh, I, I was really shocked at that. And um, but uh, I, nothing surprises me coming out of uh, out of the Vatican. It's just another you know kosher occupied 
facility, just like Washington, D.C. is kosher-occupied, just like Berlin is kosher-occupied. Uh, like you said, Martin Luther and St. Thomas Aquinas uh, uh, warned us about uh, these types of things. But well, yeah, we, that, we get warnings, but it's, I think it's pretty amazing. When the Pope uh, says uh, salvation comes from the Jews, I don't know. Well, my salvation, my salvation <laughs> doesn't come from them, for sure. <laughs> well, but, uh, Christian you know, salvation, even according to know, all Christians, the Christian salvation doesn't come from the Jews, but they, only the Christian Zionists know, are saying that. So I guess he's become a Christian Zionist. This discussion we're having right now about the Catholic Church is very important because I have an actual, just a couple of lines. Adolf Hitler met with uh, uh, Archbishop uh, Michael Faldner of Munich. Uh, he was the Archbishop of Munich. Mm-hmm. And there was some, a lot of dis, you know, issues going on between with Rosenberg and uh, Bormann and, uh, and the church. And Adolf Hitler had a lot of meetings with the clergy. All you have to do is you know, read table talk and do some real research to understand that he was very well versed in the New Testament and in biblical teaching. Well, during this discussion, uh, he had, and this I'm, t- I'm taking this from the text from a book that was written by Timothy Ryback. It's called Hitler's uh, Hitler's Library. It has some very good information, and I don't like the book. I don't like certain portions of the book, but it actually has some good reference material in it, and it documents some of these uh, conversations. But uh, Hitler's telling the Archbishop, "Quote: The Catholic Church must not allow itself to be deceived." Hitler goes on to say, "Quote: If National Socialism." does not become the master over Bolshevism. So uh, this meeting actually had taken place, Barbarossa, you know, the, the preemptive action against the Soviet Union had already, taken, had already begun. Then it will be over with for Christianity and the church in Europe. Hitler went on to say that there is a relationship between national socialism and the Catholic church. Christianity is insolubly bound to our people and to the Occidental culture by a thousand-year-old history. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't get any more clear no, than that. No, you can't. No. And so they totally turn it around when they try to make out that uh, the Nazis, uh, that uh, Third Reich was an atheist, some kind of an atheist yeah. nation or something. Uh, just the, the, the whole, the, well, you know, it's, it's so ridiculous. I mean, you just can't, you, there's no place to, to, to end talking about how, how silly it is and how totally how you can show it's just absolutely false. Bill Fink has a great quote that you know, the Third Reich and its crusade against Bolshevism and an attempt to preserve Europe was you know Western Christianity's last attempt. And he's right. He's right. Because look what's happened since May 7th, 1945. I mean, it's just gone to, you know, the world's just gone down the tubes. And he's absolutely right that the uh, you know the Third Reich was uh, was was Western Christianity just the last last salvation. It was his last attempt to preserve white Western Christian culture. And uh, um, look what's happened now. Really, really, if we want if we want to look to uh, what would be a, a model for us to follow, that we would have to look at the Third Reich. We would have to look at Hitler's not a National Socialist Germany. That is the that is the best example of what we of what we can create on this earth, and it was always let's let's remember that this is so I, uh, the, you know Wagner keeps using the word socialism, but um, 
in his quoting of, of his remembering what Hitler said, but it was always national, you know, so let's not get okay. carried away here and people say, oh, Hitler was another socialist, you know, Listen like, the, like the, the Russians or something. He was never that kind of a socialist. He never wanted, and people want to make him out today. Um, there are many Christians today who like, uh, who like Hitler, and they want to make him out to be a multiculturalist. Uh, that drive that you know I, I that makes me uh, gets me going makes me a little bit upset and then I want to uh, present an argument to them because um, uh, Hitler was never a multiculturalist. Sure, he respected other cultures and other other peoples. He respected these some of these Arab nations and and uh, the Turkish people. He respected the Japanese people. He respected a lot of different people. But he didn't want them to, to to come into Germany and be and they, they weren't welcome uh, to come except as a visitor, you know. I mean that's that's the way he saw it, and he was well, right. In, in 1935, the NSDAP put out what was called a book of virtues. That the best way to describe it is called Faith in Action. It had it's basically a few paragraphs under a main topic. The first one was blood. The last sentence of it says, "Your blood is holy, for for in it God's will lives." Then it talks about race, it talks about the people, the bulk, the state. But then it has a topic called socialism. And it's important to understand that socialism under, under national socialism was German socialism. And it said socialism, it started out, socialism means the common good before the individual good. Socialism means not the same for everyone, but to each his own. That's significant because that's not Marxism. That's not communism. And then it goes on to talk about what the people's community is all about. And it goes on and talks about fatherland, courage, loyalty, self-control, and discipline. All of this, if you were to reprint this book, uh, this book of virtue, which is only about 20 pages, and make it applicable to today, uh, you know, in today's multicultural, self-centered, give me, 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 uh, they call you, well, they call you all sorts of names, but it's very... It was very well done. It was done in 1930, 35. Do a thing for its own sake. Order, nature, fate, birth and death. It was very well done. But in it, they went out of their way to define what German socialism was and national socialism as opposed to socialism of the left, of communism, of Marxism. And uh, I, I think probably, and I have the book, the same book you talked about, talked about uh, 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 Hitler, members of a confidant. And, you know, he did have issues because he was a little more over to the left. But yes, he was. Yes, he was. He still supported and admired all of the social innovations. And let's use that word, you know, I can't use that word enough. They were innovations that were uh, developed in National Socialist Germany. They were social innovations. They were economic innovations. And uh, they scared the heck out of the rest of the world because they, they presented yeah, a, well, a, a social – a system that has never before or since been used. And, yeah, and uh, that's why uh, I said in the beginning that uh, it was uh, Hitler had a revolutionary approach to economics and social programs. So Hitler called himself a revolutionary, yeah. but sure. he was also a traditional traditionalist when it came to family, home, and religion, oh, sure. and uh, folkish, uh, you know, he wanted a, a strong nationalist government for because people could only be safe and happy uh, among their own. You can't mix people up like that. So this, well, this sure. was what he was all about. It was a, it it's, was a part revolutionary. 
Well, sure. He understood that it's in nobody's interest to have a multi-ethnic, multicultural uh, uh, nation, and there's there's discussions and table talk. And, uh, and of course, he that. knew. He knew, and we know that it's the Jews who are behind that. Only the Jews want that. They've convinced all these other peoples that they that they should want it too. But they never wanted it before. Well, they don't want you know? it for them. They don't want it for them. They want it for everybody else. And now, you know, they don't even try to hide it anymore, Carol. And now they make public statements that quote Jews will pay a, play a leading role in taking Europe and America into the multicultural age. Yeah. Uh, in right. quote, that's their quotes, and we see the ramifications of that. That's why they hate the social innovations that were brought about under you know, National Socialist uh, uh, Germany, uh, and uh, the reason why that they will never allow any open and honest, or they'll fight against any open and honest discussion of those innovations and, and the and the uh, results of those. Now, I will say this. I think we have a window, and I think their work is getting a little harder because there is a new book out by an author named R.H.S. Stolpe, who has actually uh, written a very good book on uh, Adolf Hitler and is taking on the uh, uh, propagandist historians such as Richard Evans and such. And it's yeah. Hitler. Oh, I hate Richard Evans. Fight. I've got some stuff from Richard Evans here. While we're still on this, let me. This is a good place to insert this quote from Einstein. Uh, I wonder if this surprised me. I'd never heard it before. I don't know if you've heard it or if any of the listeners have heard it. But Einstein said this in 1931, two years before Hitler came to power. Um, He said, I have to laugh when I hear the phrase, or he was in Germany then, you know. Uh, Of course, I hope everybody knows Einstein was 100% Jewish. Uh, He says, I have to laugh when I hear the phrase, German citizen of the Jewish faith. Well, at that time, there was a German-Jewish organization that had that name, so that's what he was speaking about. He said, these citizens, first of all, want nothing to do with my poor Eastern European brothers, and second, do not want to be sons of my Jewish people, but only members of the Jewish, well, he didn't say Jewish people, he just said sons of my people, but only members of the Jewish cultural community. Is that honest? Can a non-Jew respect such people? I am not a German citizen, I'm a Jew, and I'm happy to belong to the Jewish people. So isn't that interesting? Uh, now, for one thing, was he from Eastern Europe? I really don't know where he came from. I just All I know is he was, he, was a, uh, in Ger- he was a German, I thought, a German, I mean a Jew living in Germany. Well, uh, but also he says, he, says that, uh, he, says, he says that non-Jews can't respect people who, who say that they're Jewish uh, members of of another nation, they're German Jewish, uh, a German citizen of the Jewish faith. He says he's not a German citizen of the Jewish faith. He's a Jew. He belongs to the Jewish people. He's not. He doesn't belong to to the German people. That's what he's saying. And then after Hitler came in, and then after they decided they had to get rid of him, they all turned it around and said, "Oh, you know, uh, he's telling us Jews that we're not Germans." Well, they never wanted to be Germans anyway. Well, some of them did, I guess. But he's, Einstein is, is uh, making fun of those. He's, 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 uh, he's speaking poorly of those uh, Jews who, who think of themselves as Germans. Mm-hmm. Well, Carolyn, I mean, here, here's the point. He's proving the point that they are a state, within, a foreign state within a state. They're enemy aliens. Well, yeah, that's right, Exactly. He is. That's how he thought of himself. Now, let's go a step further. Einstein left Germany, came over, and was granted instant U.S. citizenship. 
why, you know, that statement should have precluded him from having U.S. citizenship. Well, of course, he changed he changed the way he was talking. You know, also someone has pointed out to me that he was a pacifist um, uh, when he, uh, before Hitler, he was a pacifist. And then after uh, he left uh, Germany and went to the United States, he, he, he was the one who proposed, who talked to Roosevelt about uh, an atom bomb. He, he he was very much behind that program, so he totally changed from his in his pacifism. So anyway, uh, we can't go into all that, I guess. But yeah, Carolyn, ever, just for, I know we can't go into that, but just one final comment, Carolyn, because I can't resist. Every one of those so-called Jews who said they were Germans that left Germany came over here and immediately got onto the United States to basically destroy and genocide their quote their Germany end quote. So you know, I really they they're they're uh, their statements are not credible. And then they came over, they joined the army and mm-hmm. came over, U.S. Army, and they came over and waged war against Germany and wreaked havoc. And the things they did in 19, late 45, 46 is, uh, is just absolutely an abomination. So Einstein proves the point that they are a state, an enemy state within a state. And, you know, we should say, we should frame that thing, uh, quote that you found, and uh, anytime somebody says, oh, no, no, they're Germans, they're just a Jewish faith, they really? Here you go. Yeah, they don't They don't even believe it themselves. They know better. So, uh, well, that is, um, that, that leads us to the racial thinking, which is one other thing that I mentioned. And, of course, I think we've, we've pretty well also, we've talked about that. But yeah, the, there's a reason for the racial thinking. There, there's a good reason for it. So, uh, you know, from our point of view, it is not something... Um, ugly as they uh, want to make it out to be, and as you just pointed out, only for only for us, only for white people, not for anybody else. No, so I, I'm no. pretty satisfied that I've covered the points that I felt I really wanted to. Um, I wonder if there's any caller that wants to call in. Uh, Carolyn, can I just take two minutes real quick? Sure. And while you're doing, let me just ask David if there's any callers, and then you, uh, while he's checking okay. into that, you can go ahead and say what you want to say, Rodney. The, the, the infamous Reich citizenship law was only uh, uh, three basic provisions, and it was adopted into law on September 15, 1935. And basically, it says uh, a German is a German, and uh, it uh, laid out some very clear and distinct provisions as to who a German is and who could participate in Germany and who could not. And I will say this that if you look at the citizenship provisions in the artificial state of Israel today, they are blatantly more quote-unquote racist and exclusionary than the right citizenship of 1935. The right citizenship of 1935 was more inclusionary. I use the word inclusionary and had more provisions and was more fair than the Israeli uh, citizenship laws are today. And I encourage anyone to basically look up the 1935 uh, uh, like uh, uh, citizenship law. The companion law was the law for protection of, of German blood and honor, and that law was uh, nowhere near as uh, uh, harsh as the laws that were similarly enacted and had already been put in place and were being practiced in the United States of America at the time. So um, uh, essentially uh, what was put in place in 1935 as far as citizenship and the racial laws were meant to preserve 
German identity and to make sure that Germany is a German nation, just like in Israel they say Israel is a Jewish nation. Um, okay, Rodney, well, I'm getting a message here that um, I think somebody is, is on the call now. He's going to open his mic if you're done. I'm done. Okay. Is somebody there who wants to ask a question of us or something? Yes, thank you. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, this is yes, Rob. I, I was wondering. Uh, okay. Alfred Einstein um, Albert wrote a, a, an editorial to the New York Times in which he was very critical of Israel and the atrocities that it was committing against the Palestinian people. It, it seems a bit ironic, uh, considering his Judeo-centricity, which you pointed out earlier. How do you explain that? Is it a, a, a paradox or an irony, or what, how do you explain that? Well, I don't, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't really studied Einstein. Uh, maybe Rodney has an answer to that. But I think that uh, Einstein is just a little bit uh, uh, hypocritical. I don't think he's the uh, the. I don't think he's a good guy that people want to make him out to be, and that may just have been part of his his uh, taking care of the Jews, where a lot of Jews uh, criticize Israel in order to make the Jews look better, so that uh, they, there are Jews on all sides and so on, and also that uh, they think that what Israel is doing is is bad for the Jews around the world. So that would be the only answer I would have, uh, Rodney. I'm not I'm not familiar with the New York Times editorial where Einstein criticized Israel's treatment of the Palestinians, so I can't comment on that. If he, you know, and and, and so I I I'm not, I can't comment on something that I'm not familiar with. Uh, yeah, you know, really, Einstein would have to answer that question. You know, we get right. asked questions about people, and we don't know we we can't answer for them. Uh, but they don't answer for themselves because nobody asks them these tough questions. They can't get at them. Right. Well, I've read the the editorial which Einstein uh, Okay. Yes, and, and it's extremely critical of Israel. Um, as you said, he he was a pacifist. Well, but again, the, 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 he 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 invented the atom bomb and <laughs> yeah, encouraged that's right. using it. Yeah. And yet, yes. on the and yet, yeah, and yet on the other hand. He writes this uh, lengthy editorial to the New York Times uh, criticizing Israel. Uh, it's really hard to, I mean, I've read it. It's, there's no question about uh, what he wrote. Mm-hmm. He's extremely criti- critical of Israel. And, yeah, okay, uh, okay. Well, we've got that. Um, uh, I, you know, another thing is that uh, Israel is not, a sub, it's not something that I concern myself with that much except in uh, what it's, you know, except in how we, our, our country, the United States, has gotten totally under the control of Israel. That's that's the concern. Um, but Israel is really not something. But we're discussing here tonight. And Einstein. Well, all I can say is that that's a quote from him back in 1931. So over a course of years, he's had different opinions, I suppose. Well, the re- the reason I bring it up is that there's so much talk now about distinguishing Zionism from Judaism and such. And this would just well, sort of be yeah, another, well, another example of that. I mean, here is a man who would apparently 
be an anti-Zionist for criticizing Israel, yet, as you point out, uh, the man was extremely uh, Judeo-centric. It's sort yes. of an... Yes, he was. Okay, thank you. Um, thank you, uh, Russ, uh, for your call. And, uh, do you mind if I continue to listen? Uh, can, do you mind if I continue to hold and listen? Well, I, it's, up to, it's up to the uh, the bo- person on the board. Okay, Rodney, um, I don't I don't mind. Uh, Rodney, uh, should we should we uh, should we sum up here? I see some sure. people are leaving the chat, so uh, they might figure the show is pretty much over. Sure. Uh, I, I, I think from in, you know from my point, I think I covered everything. I, I think we covered pretty much everything that we could cover on the topic. I think it was a good society. I think the social innovations were so far-reaching and so broad, and the facts speak for themselves that between uh, January, February of 1933, 1936, National Socialist Germany was economically self-sustaining, and by 1938, it was economically and socially a marvel, and it just shocked shocked the world. Yeah. We didn't get too much into the war because the war dictates other. Other than I will make a parting comment is that Germany, all these social programs continued throughout the war, and Germany did not even go on a full war footing until Goebbels', uh, Goebbels great uh, total war speech after Stalingrad in March of 1943. That can give you an idea. Uh, well, the people, the people, the German people had been brought together so well prior to uh, 1939 or up till then, that when war broke out, all the way to the end, they remained uh, uh, connected, uh, faithful to uh, to their to their government, and and faithful to one another, and and in this, in this great sense of their own community and their own right to exist as they wanted to exist. So that that shows the success of that there. But you know, uh, the reason that there was a war was because. Germany was such a good society and so successful. Uh, that's yes. why there was a war. The fact that never before or since has a society like that been allowed to exist, and it wasn't allowed to exist then. And the Germany, that society did not collapse like the Roman Empire or the Soviets or like the United States is collapsing now. It, colla- it, it, came, it came to an end because communism and capitalism was scared to death of that society and teamed up to bring it down by virtue of its Jewish puppet masters. Yeah, and and the, the Jewish uh, the Jewish money system too. So yeah, uh, yeah. That, that, and that, that's what distinguished it, uh, Carolyn. Is in National Socialist Germany, you don't have middlemen Jewish money launderers making money off the system. It was a national system for the people, as opposed to Marxism and hypercapitalism. Yeah. Well, there's. I'm sure we really didn't do it justice. Um, there, you know, it's hard. There's so there's so many parts to it, and uh, there's so much to be said. But uh, like, uh, we did the best we could in the time we had. <laughs> Me on the phone posting, here. Um, I will be posting some materials, Carolyn, on my website at uh, wvfoundations.org. The map of the support that the National Socialists got in the rural areas and some other items that are okay. fascinating. They came across the Book of Virtues that was put out in 1935, so I will be posting those items there. Uh, okay, very good. So, anyway. We welcome, we uh, encourage people to go there and see what you have there. You have a lot of a lot of good material there. 
And they can always come to my website, carolynyeager.com, but I don't I don't know that I'm going to be posting anything special from tonight's program. But um, I thank everybody for listening, and I thank David, who was working the board. I think it was David. And I thank you, Rodney, for coming on. And uh, and we thank Bill Fink. And uh, we're now going to say good night to all the listeners. Thank you. Okay. Good night. Good night, everyone. <laughs>